Well, good morning, everyone, and I appreciate uh, you coming out and braving the elements here. So um, I always joke, uh, I was talking with my colleague this morning about, uh, you know, I mean, when it's beautiful, it's wonderful, you know, that we have a college on top of the mountain when it's wonderful weather, but days like this, it's just sort of like, okay, really? Get blown away as I almost was walking from the north lot up here. It's really difficult to make my way uh, to my office this morning. Well, um, my talk, I'm going to be talking about black women and the problem of stereotypes. Now, <clears throat> when I was first asked to talk in chapel um, in the series on human sexuality and gender, um, I immediately thought of talking about black women, uh, which I thought was a good idea in light of the fact that it's February is Black History Month, and of course, March is Women's History Month. So I thought it's very fitting, I'm speaking on the 20th. February, we're just about to go into March. Um, but as I got closer, uh, I began to question my decision uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one of the main reasons was my concern that some of you might kind of tune me out, uh, fearing that I may leave you feeling guilty or that you're just tired of talking about race. Um, I must confess to you openly and honestly that that is not, whoops, was that me? Okay. That's not what I'm uh, here to do. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Uh, I'm here as a scholar who specializes in African-American history uh, and Southern history, um, who would like to impart knowledge that impacts all of us. Um, this is especially important as our community is called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, but then there were other things that happened that reassured me that my decision uh, had validity. Uh, as it was October of 2018, um, when Megyn Kelly, the journalist, the, the newscaster, uh, defended wearing blackface at a Halloween party, uh, which unfortunately is an annual event, uh, especially among white fraternities and sororities, uh, as white individuals paint their faces um, black. Let's see if I can get this straight here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, the first image is what were, are called, were called, depending on, sometimes I'd like to say they were, were but oftentimes they are called, uh, ghetto parties. Um, now, typically people of color are not invited to these gatherings. This is always a hint that this is something you shouldn't do, um, clearly. And some of these pictures, I should say, date back to the 2000s. Um, when I was a grad student finishing up university in Mississippi, these were pictures, I think one is from Georgetown, um, the other one is from Auburn. Um, but this is from 2016. It's a student who posted in her Instagram post um, herself in blackface and um, even took the occasion to use the N-word um, in her Instagram post. So again, I thought, okay, maybe this is legitimate for me to talk about blackface and stereotypes. Well, then it was February 2nd, um, and the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, admitted to wearing blackface in 1984 in his medical college yearbook which he later denied the picture, but then admitted to darkening his skin and attending a party as Michael Jackson. The Virginia Attorney General, Mark Herring, um, calls, immediately called for the governor to resign, to step down, but then he had to admit that he too had worn blackface um, as a picture surfaced from his college yearbook. 
Now, the focus of my talk is about stereotypes, particularly as they relate to black women. And I hope for those of you unfamiliar with this history, when I finish, you will understand why people of color find these so offensive. And for those of you who have maybe one or two black friends who tell you this is acceptable, because I have had students who've told me, well, you know, what's the problem with Dr. Jackson with wearing blackface? And I admonish them not to do it. Um, I tell them, I, I recommend to them not wearing blackface um, as they, if they are entering an all-black community. Because see, the thing about this, and I think this is something to understand about things that are maybe humorous to one community, if it's something that you can't visibly display to everyone, that means that there's a problem with it. And I guarantee you, the people in these pictures I've showed you, they wouldn't walk into an all-black community or a community of color because they understand the offensiveness of it. But in some reason, they find that there's spaces where they can do this, and it's acceptable. But the other thing I want you to understand is that implications of stereotypes and how they undermine knowing people truly as who they are. Now, the term stereotype um, from the Oxford English Dictionary, it's a preconceived or oversimplified idea of the characteristics which typify a person, situation, an attitude based on such a, uh, such a preconception or a person who appears to conform closely to the idea of a type a stereotype, and they're problematic um, because they um, take a shortcut. You don't have to really get to know someone. You just base everything on your preconceived ideas and untested perceptions. In many ways, these negative stereotypes assist in dehumanizing a person. Now, dehumanization is a process in which a group or individual is perceived and treated as less than few, uh, fully human. Now, according to psychologist Nick Haslam, there are two ways in which an individual or group can be dehumanized. First, they can be denied uniquely human attributes, such as civility, rationality. And then secondly, they can be denied human attributes, such as warmth, emotionally, uh, um, emotions, um, vitality, um, and sometimes likened to machines or objects. Now, these methods were commonly used um, in the Holocaust, um, as well as the Rwandan genocide, as people were commonly put into these groups by outside forces or groups outside their own. And in reality, this has been very much a part of the black experience, which I think you'll see this morning. This stereotype has been very common. Um, one of the things that was interesting in talking to a colleague here is that less than 15 years ago, um, there were circulating stories um, amongst people here uh, some people here, that black men actually had tails. There was discussion that black men had tails. I mean, these are real people. This is not like a long time ago who actually thought this. So again, these ideas of dehumanization, again, have very real implications. Now, many of these stereotypes developed in the early 18th and late 19th century, but are very much a part of the 20th century experience. Bing Crosby in blackface. Judy Garland in blackface. And Bugs Bunny in blackface. So these are very much a part of our history. 
And, in, 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 interestingly enough, it's not just an American phenomenon. A lot of this has been exported, but also you see it in other parts of the world. But very much a part of, again, the American experience. Now, in talking about stereotypes, I'm going to talk about four particular stereotypes, and the first one we'll talk about is the mammy. This character is based on, in some fact, as a black woman um, who did domestic servant, who's a domestic servant, um, was the great comforter. Um, she cared for white individuals and their children, um, oftentimes ignoring the needs of her own children. Um, and this idea really proliferated, especially after the end of the American Civil War, as you saw the rise of the lost cause, um, but it's built in a faulty um, idea. As most plantation mistresses preferred, oops, preferred um, taking care of their own children rather than having um, a black woman take care of their children. Um, this idea, this nostalgic, falsified view of black women as the mammy um, was so prolific that in the 1890s, the United Daughters of the Confederacy actually wanted to put up a monument to the mammy. Now, the mammy stereotype juxtaposed with the Tom caricature. Um, again, this is a black woman who's a loyal domestic servant who, again, lovingly takes care of the white individual's family outside of her own, at, well, at the uh, expense of her own children. Um, and uh, for a lot of individuals, that's why they would argue black women should be servants. Black women should work in domestic service. It was also used as an image to sell products. Um, you're familiar with Aunt Jemima. If you think about Mrs. Buttersworth, the bottle, this amber-colored bottle that's shaped in many ways kind of in a, in a rather a voluptuous way, um, it's all built upon this idea of the mammy who brings comfort. Now, this is not as much of a common stereotype of black women as black women don't work in domestic uh, services much anymore, but this stereotype still has currency as it has been replaced by the magical Negro. The African-American man or woman who is wise, morally upright, who pulls a white character through a crisis. Now, according to philosopher and cultural theorist, A.K. Apaya, um, he's the one who developed this idea. Now, most notably, you see this character uh, in The Green Mile, Legend of Bagger Vance, as well as the Whoopi Goldberg character in Ghosts. He or she puts whites at ease and oftentimes does this by smiling all the time and providing her calming presence. Then there is the sapphire. She is represented in a number of ways. Now, she's originally known as a sassy mammy in the late 1800s. She's sharp-tongued, who is a perpetual complainer. According to Jennifer Bailey Woodward and Teresa Mastin, she is an emasculating matriarch who dictates to both her children and her man their place in her home. This mother typically works outside the home and her children suffer for it. She's not feminine and dependent enough, which in the eyes of this whole idea, stereotype of um, the Jezebel, it hurts black men from leading the family. Now, according to Woodward and Mastin, studies show that nearly 10 years after one of the most popular television shows, The Cosby Show, ended, Claire Huxtable was considered to, many, to be many a, a modern-day um, matriarch. Overly aggressive, maternal, 
not maternal enough, too outspoken, overly controlling toward her husband and children. Again, how these ideas carry forward. Now, during the same time in the late 20th century, the sapphire morphed into what is known as the angry black woman. She is someone who is bitter and self-serving. Next is the Jezebel. This figure dates back to the first contact European men had with African women. And they mostly took, and they took, mistook the semi-nudity of um, many African women as lewdness. Strengthening this notion was that polygamy was common, common practice in Africa, continental Africa, as well as in many parts of the world, but particularly they focused in on African culture as being, and African women, uh, because of their dress and because of this practice, um, as being signs of black women having an uncontrollable lust. The stereotype developed that black women, particularly lighter-skinned black women, uh, were sexually aggressive, uncaring, caring only for their satisfaction. And white males fostered this image of black women, particularly during slavery, as sexual abuse and rape occurred to black women. And, and I will say this, you can go through the documents with yourself, and you can look through, and particularly um, there's a slave trading company out of Tennessee, and they talk about in their records how they're looking for light-skinned black women um, because these are women that would be able to satisfy particular needs that these men had. Now, um, at the slave markets, um, it was very common for black women, of course, to be stripped down um, so that they could, you know, people could you know, look and, and gaze at black women and, and look for certain particular features. And again, but they were looking for black women today, we, or biracial women. Um, but back then, they would use the terms like mulatto, quadroon, octoroon, terms we would not use today. But that's what they would look for uh, in terms of black women, and again, help to perpetuate this notion of the Jezebel. Now, although this Jezebel stereotype was particularly common during slavery, when African-American women had very little control over their bodies, and were subject to all types of violence, yet this stereotype exists today. In social media, black women are hypersexualized, and most notably in music videos, as decorative objects. And according to the most recent study, this has resulted in black women being objectified and dehumanized more than their white counterparts. This same belief has also been attributed to black women um, and looking at fashion advertisements, which show black women as predatory and, um, and animals. So it's very often typical that you'll see black women wearing animal prints, um, but again, sort of associating more with sort of the animal um, side of life. Now, tied to this is greater social exclusion, harsher punishment, and more punitive treatment. The next stereotype, so you see another example of the Jezebel. Um, these are actual pictures. This is, uh, the one on the side is from uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. These are part of the uh, Censored Eleven. Um, there are Censored Eleven cartoons that you can find online that are, have been pulled, I think it's Warner Brothers that pulled them because of the fact um, that they're considered to be so racist um, and so offensive. But that's where that picture comes from on the end. Okay. And then there is the Coon. 
which has sort of morphed into what is also known as the welfare queen, but we'll talk about the coon first, um, is directly connected to the minstrel shows, uh, which were first performed in the early 20th century. Uh, now, these shows developed in New York um, by Irishmen who performed in blackface with over-exaggerated features with burnt cork, what we saw at the beginning of the, of the presentation. It was a way for working-class whites, especially Irish, who were often looked down upon, to portray their version of black life. According to Eric Lott, it allowed whites who were threatened and fearful of rising black power to create what they thought was black life. It allowed them to out act outside of acceptable behavior while still maintaining their whiteness and looking down on blacks. Now, the coon is short for raccoon and could be either male or female, but was frequently male. It is a black person uh, who would work as a servant, but oftentimes was too lazy to improve themselves and was a perpetual child of sorts, who was unable to live alone, happy-go-lucky, eating watermelon and chicken. Most recently, this caricature has been associated with welfare mothers and welfare queens, as they were described in the 18, 1980s and 1990s. Their only desire is not to work, but instead live off the state. This image places blame on black women and justifies efforts to restrict her ability to have children. But there's more to tell, as all these ideas have implications not only for the majority culture, but for people of color in very profound ways. According to a number of studies, women have been ranked, and particularly dating services have ranked black women, and surprise, surprise, black women have been considered the least attractive of all racial groups. Now, I wonder how that happened. With all these visions of all these perspectives about black women, I think you'd understand why. Perhaps the most painful reality is that has this has become an intra-racial problem. As some black men have avoided dating black women, claiming that black women are too aggressive, too domineering. Now, because most of American history, um, there was strident, clear-cut segregation, it was dangerous for black men to date women, black women outside of their race, which meant it was common for black men to prefer lighter-skinned black women. And I think that feeds into some of these, again, these ideas that are circulating why they would prefer not to date darker-skinned black women. Now, this pain that it was experienced by black women, um, it was verbalized as in, in song in the 1930s as black women, particularly those of darker complexion, were acquainted with the negative, um, negative associations of black women. And in 1930, Ethel Waters sang the song Black and Blue. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the song Black and Blue. You've heard Louis Armstrong singing Black and Blue. But um, Waters had a different uh, version to her of the song. And this is what she sings. Browns and yellows all have their fellows. Gentlemen prefer them light. I'm just another spade 
Can't make the grade. Nothing but dark days in sight. Cause you're black, folks think you lack. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do to be so black and blue? When you, when you are near, they laugh and sneer, set you aside and you're denied. What did I do to be so black and blue? How sad am I? Each day I feel worse. My mark of ham seems to be a curse. How will it end? Ain't got no friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue? These ideas represent what Albert Memmi talks about. And he talks about this in the idea of imperialism and colonization when he's looking at what's going on in continental Africa. But I think this, you can understand this when he talks about the oppressed developing positive views of the oppressor and society and what society, the oppressive society is saying and embracing a negative view of themselves. Now, the first time I really came in contact with this and really saw the implications of this was when I was in eighth grade. One of my classmates, who was very dark complexed, came into class and sat down and just threw her things on the, on the on table. And I knew Tabitha not super well, but she told me, she said, I hate being my color. I hate being black. I hate being this color. And she quietly berated herself as ugly and unattractive with, with saying that she had no hope of finding anyone who would love her or love her back, or she could love or love her back. So you see, these ideas have implications. These ideas play out as the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown released in their report in 2017 that analyze adult perceptions of black youth. Their findings show that compared to white girls in the same age, survey participants perceive black girls knowing more about adult topics and sex. It is also why roughly four weeks ago, following the airing of Surviving R. Kelly, the editorial board of Duke Chronicle published an article entitled, How We Failed Our Black Girls. Responding to the nearly 20-year acceptance of R. Kelly's behavior by both, black and by both the black and white community, as he preyed upon adolescent girls, he married a 15-year-old, among other things. That's the tamer thing I can tell you in here and continue to perform with notable black and white performers despite numerous accusations and actual evidence of child pornography. It is why when Serena Williams is portrayed in an ape-like distorted figure from her counterpart, Naomi Osaki, um, Serena Williams is African-American, 
Naomi um, Osaki, Osaka, rather, is uh, Japanese and Haitian. But if you look in this cartoon from September 2018, you see how Serena Williams is portrayed as an angry black woman, almost ape-like. And it made many cringe who know this history. Now, if you see what's interesting is um, Naomi Osaka, she's portrayed as being white, petite white individual, although she's not, clearly, if you, and it just tells you her heritage. But you see how Serena Williams is portrayed. Now, again, I'm not going to get into all the logistics of protest and all that kind of thing, but understand this, again, the history I told you about, and then compare it with the fact that you have someone like John McEnroe, and I encourage you to look back at videos, John McEnroe, who would throw down his racket and yell explicitives at the judges. And that was a common thing. I mean, people actually looked at matches to see what John McEnroe would do in his matches because he was, they knew something would happen. There are many other ways that this plays out in terms of the portrayal of Michelle Obama, an angry black woman, and she talks about this in her book, Becoming. Again, you know, how much do you smile? How much do you do whatever? I mean, should you do certain things so that people would kind of see you as more acceptable? Can you sort of fit more into that mammy character? But that's not who you are. But then if you exert yourself, then you're an angry black woman. We see this. Um, Gucci, of course, this is the Gucci sweater. Um, was uh, pulled. Now, maybe Gucci didn't understand this. Um, I'm, I mean, I showed you all those pictures. I, I don't know how you could miss that this would be offensive. Then you have Katy Perry's shoes, which were pulled as well um, because of this history of blackface. Now, again, I'm not here to make you feel guilty, to make you walk away and just bemoan everything, but I want you to understand why members of our community may take offense at these things, because it's a long-standing history. Because living by stereotypes totally undermines what we are commanded to do, to know our neighbor and to be known. And it's why I asked William, to sing Tasha Cobb's, you know, uh, He Knows My Name. And I asked him to sing that before chapel or to play it before chapel. Because in a world where people can know us just by stereotypes and don't want to take the time to get to know us, we should do better than that. But when we don't do better, the thing that should give us comfort is that he knows my name. He knows my name. He walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own because he knows my name. So again, understand the history of these stereotypes understand how debilitating these are to people in our community. 
Thank you.